From the first days of the history of the church, or the history of time, to, to, to the present, some have speculated that half of all persons ever conceived died before reaching maturity. That's an astounding number, isn't it? That means at least one out of every four people die in the womb. Seventy-five percent of these deaths happen in the first 12 weeks after conception. Around the world today and even among births that occur at full term or actually the baby actually is born uh, or the the deaths of baby at the time of delivery is an amazing amount even with all the advanced medicine and science and technology we have. We live in a a world, a a country of a vast medical uh, technology and we are somewhat insulated and, and amazed, at, and would be amazed if we knew the amount of, of deaths of babies across the world today. In the year 1999 alone, if you take that one year, the World Health Organization estimated that 4,350,000 babies died that year worldwide, and some say that was a very, very conservative estimate because some uh, countries do not have adequate reporting, and even today the number could be uh, upwards of 10 million Uh, babies a year and and there's really no way of knowing that but that's just kind of a a big number a number to kind of uh, estimate thinking back through history though with that in mind think of the billions uh, of people who have have died not from normal means or lived to adulthood or in war or from disease but just in utero or uh, in birth or as, as babies or before they reached maturity This is not even taking into consideration the astounding number of babies that we shudder to even think about whose lives are ended in utero because of the choice of a mother to end that baby's life. And that would compound that that number even more. And so we have a number that we really can't uh, comprehend. The question arises to any thinking person, those who think of theology, who think of the scripture, because we think about all kinds of things, don't we, since we believe in the soul and the, and the creator and God and the hereafter. What then does that mean for these in this God's scale in eternity? What does it mean? What happens to these babies who die? The death of a child at any age is, is one of the saddest occurrences in the world. It's, it's an inconsolable uh, sorrow to parents' hearts. Even among Christians possessing strong and seemingly unshakable faith, the death of a child is among the worst things that could ever happen. But God in his providence took several of... Uh, he's in charge of... The, we just have to bow here and pause here and say that, that God is, is sovereign. In his providence, uh, in our own heart, in our own family, Kathy and I had hoped at an early age to have a large family, whatever that meant, whatever God wanted us to have. And, and we have several babies that I, I uh, am assured of that I will see one day in heaven. They will not be babies. They will be uh, glorified and, and robed in his righteousness, and I look forward to that. You may ask me, why do I think so? How can I be so sure? Well, as always, we go to the Scripture for our conviction, for our beliefs about anything that we hold. There are, I believe, several opinions about this matter that are unfounded and unscriptural. So I think when we're studying anything, we should look at the things that are not true, that do not hold weight as far as the water is concerned. 
And I won't spend long here, but just to let you know that there are different philosophies, even among professing believers or religious people, about what happens in the death of babies. There is universalism, which people who embrace universalism is really what the majority of religious people believe that it holds that everybody, babies or adults or whoever, will ultimately somehow or another find their way into heaven. And that's the the main mindset of most people who believe anything, that somehow or another in the great eternity, God will relent and he will change his mind and that everybody will go to heaven and nobody could possibly ever suffer eternity in hell. Which is, of course, opposite to everything the scripture teaches And so the vast majority who hold that don't hold tightly about anything else really in the Scripture. It's all very nebulous and whatever. Uh, It's based on sentimentalism. But but the Scripture is not just sentimentalism. God is right. He's just. He's holy. His Word is true. What He has said is true. It will come to pass. And God doesn't do anything based on a sentimental, uh, grandfatherly, Santa Claus, genie kind of a mentality that a lot of people have, have devolved God into. That's not how He is. The Bible clearly teaches that we are all born sinners. And without a work of God's grace, all who are lost will spend eternity in hell. That is a cardinal doctrine of, of teach, t- taking the Bible at what it says and about God and his, about sin and His plan and purpose in the ages. Those who are saved through grace by the work of Christ will spend eternity in heaven and with the Lord. Universalism is unbiblical and, and it, it offers a false hope, but but a false hope is just that. It's unfounded. And so we must immediately do away with universalism because it is not taught in the Scripture. Because of original sin, the doctrine of original sin, that Adam is our representative, there we inherit a sin nature and the, the proclivity to sin that comes from our parents who were fallen, who got it from their parents who were fallen, from their parents who were fallen, and it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Since God is absolutely holy and without sin, what happens then to babies if, as David says in in our text here in verse 13, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned. And if you'll notice in most of your margins, you'll see my Bible says here, read Psalm 51. That is what happened. I believe David immediately fell on his knees and repented. And while he may not have prayed verbatim those words, at some point he penned those words which are, were penned at, the same, at this time of his repentance and restoration. And, uh, and so you, when you read the record here, it seems as if this happens, you know, bump, 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 just one thing after another. But who knows the time lapse, the hours and the days that may have lapsed there to when Nathan said, your sin has been, God has heard your prayer, your sin has been forgiven. But what for any rate, David repented and, and, and came to the Lord, but uh, God is absolutely holy and without sin. What happens, though, when, when babies die? We still have that question, don't we? Down through the ages, the church has come up with uh, different positions. Uh, some adopted infant baptism because of this, uh, based on the teachings of an early church writer and and teacher Ambrose, who taught that baptized babies went to heaven and unbaptized babies went to hell. And just because he taught that, a sector of the church embraced that. And, of course, there are many fallacies with that. Baptism does not save adults, let alone children. And so, you know, there's nothing you can do to kind of seal the deal or, or bargain and 
help take the care of this child in his innocency, so-called innocency, although the church embraced that. And many in the church teach that today. There are those who practice that and who think that because a baby has been christened or baptized that they will go to heaven if they die before they reach the age of accountability or whatever that is. Every person baptized in the New Testament were fully of what they were doing and that what was going on, and they were baptized after they were saved and upon their profession of faith, and after they were regenerated and called upon the name of the Lord. And so, again, that's an erroneous or unbiblical teaching there. Later, or sometime, Gregory of Nyssa held that infants will have an opportunity to come to faith in Christ after they die, that something happens after a baby dies and that they, God will give them another chance and that they are presented with the claims of Christ out there somewhere, in the, wherever, and that they will have the choice to choose. And in fact, unbelievably, this is largely held by many churches today, and not only of babies, but that for some reason, based on nothing that the Scripture teaches, that God will give people another chance after they die to, to accept Christ or not. Again, these are all f- uh, faulty and sentimental uh, w- uh, efforts to appease questions and to help people feel good about uh, something very serious. And it's not a matter of making you feel good about it. What does the Scripture teach? And what does, what does, what does happen? Some believe that elect infants go to heaven, but that the non-elect do not. There are those who actually hold of that, that teaching. And while we believe that God does choose us in Christ from the foundation of the world, we do not believe that any baby or infant or child goes to hell. I will just tell you that from right, right from the beginning here tonight. I do not think that an infant, no matter at what state of conception, from conception on, who uh, we believe in that life starts at conception, that an immortal soul is conceived, and at whatever time they, they're... Uh, die before coming to a realization of their sins that they go into the presence of the Lord. That's what I hold, and I hope to teach you tonight why I hold that position before we leave here. But what do we base that upon? What do we we base the teaching that all babies who die are among the elect? The first time I really ever considered the matter, I mean, I thought about it, but I was, uh, several years ago, I came across a message by, as you can imagine, Charles Spurgeon, entitled Infant Salvation. I was scanning down a list in a a volume of his, and that just jumped out at me. Infant Salvation. I'd never really heard it put that way. What does that mean? And so I came across this gem of a message that I'm going to quote heavily from, and I've made a few copies uh, I think you'll find on the table out front. And uh, it's one of those things that you'll want to have on hand in your files, and feel free to take one. And if we run out, we can get more where that came from. He preached it on September the 29th, 1861. And in the first few, on a Sunday morning, no less, and in the first few lines of the sermon, I read, Now let every mother and father here present know assuredly that it is well with the child. If God hath taken it from you in its infant days, you never heard its declaration of faith. It was not capable of such a thing. It was not baptized into the church of Christ, nor buried with him in baptism. It was not capable of giving an answer of good conscience towards God. Nevertheless, you may rest assured that it is well with the child. 
well in that higher and a better sense than it is well with yourselves. Well without limitation. Well without exception. Well infinitely. Well eternally. He goes on to say that we do not base this assurance on the child's innocence because David prayed in Psalm 51 in that prayer of repentance based on the, the situation that took place in his life, his, his, the, the arranging of the death of Uriah, the, the infidelity with Bathsheba, the birth of the child that God takes in a, in a disciplinary way. And let me just pause and say here, God, all souls are God's. Did you know that? The Bible says all souls are mine. He is absolutely sovereign over life and can do what he pleases at any moment or any time. Sometimes we speak of an untimely death, and I know what we mean by that, the death of a young person or someone in the prime of life, but nothing is untimely with God. He knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, the psalmist said, my times are in his hands. So he knows the length and the breadth and the number of, of our days, but on our part, we should number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom and to live before Him in holiness. But in that prayer of repentance, David said, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It was not the act that brought the baby into the life that was sin. That's not what he's saying there. But his mother was a sinner, his father was a sinner, and because of that, the sin nature was passed on to him, and so down to this very hour. The Bible clearly teaches that for in Adam all died. We died spiritually. We became sinners. All the descendants of Adam, infant or grown, were represented in him. They were in his loins, so to speak. He stood for us all, and when he fell, we fell as well. If babies are saved, and I believe they are, it is not because they are innocent, because they are not. They've inherited of sin nature. Spurgeon goes on to say in that inimitable sermon, On what ground then do we believe that children to be saved? We believe it to be as lost on the rest of mankind and as truly condemned by the sentence which said, In the day that thou eatest of the fruit thereof thou shalt surely die. It is saved because it is elect. In the compass of election, in the Lamb's book of life, we believe that there shall be found written millions of souls who are not only shown on earth and they stretch their wings for heaven who are only shown here on earth and stretch their wings to heaven they are saved too because they were redeemed by the precious blood of jesus christ he who shed his blood for all of his people bought them with the same price which he redeemed their parents and therefore they are saved because christ was sponsor for them and suffered in their room instead. They are saved, again, not without regeneration, for the Bible says, except a man, the text does not mean an adult man, but a person, a being of the human race, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No doubt in some mysterious manner, the Spirit of God regenerates the infant soul, and it enters into glory made meet to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. That this is possible is proved from Scripture substances. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. We read of Jeremiah also that the same had occurred to him. And of Samuel, we found that while he yet obeyed, the Lord called him. We believe, therefore, that even before the intellect can work, God, who worketh not by the will of man, nor by blood, but by the mysterious agency of his Holy Spirit, 
creates the infant soul, a new creature in Christ Jesus, and then it enters into the rest which remaineth for the people of God. By election, by redemption, by regeneration, the child enters into glory by the self-same door by which every believer in Christ Jesus hopes to enter and in no other way. If we could not suppose that children could be saved in the same way as adults, if it would be necessary to suppose that God's justice must be infringed or that his plan of salvation must be altered to suit their cases, then we should be in doubt. But we can see with the same appliances, by the same plan, on precisely the same grounds, and through the same agencies, the infant soul can behold the Savior, a face in glory everlasting, and therefore we are at ease upon the matter. Our Lord declared, as we saw last Lord's Day evening, in Luke chapter 18, verse 16, as he called the little children to his side, he called the little children to his side, suffer the little children to come unto me, allow them to come unto me, and forbid them not. We're on one side to allow them to come to Jesus Christ, on the other side we should do nothing to hinder them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. One of the things that mesmerized me by that sermon preached by Spurgeon was his insistence, as I've already alluded to, of the vast infinite number of souls that will be in heaven. I never considered that. Because I always thought about the, the verses that t- tell us the straight is the gate and there is the way. Few there be that find it. And, and we, we think of this little colony of people. And yet when we, we, we read and think about it from another's perspective, I was just absolutely overwhelmed. He holds, Spurgeon's view, is that there will be more people in heaven than there will be in hell. Have you ever considered that fact? Let that sink in. Would you indulge me again to read, because only he can say it in the way that that he said it, when he preached on that Sunday morning 154 years ago. Once again, one of the strongest inferential arguments is to be found in the fact that the Scripture positively states that the number of souls, saved souls at the last will be very great. In the Revelation, we read of a number that no man can number. The psalmist speaks of them as numerous as dewdrops from the womb of the morning. Many passages give to Abraham as the father of the faithful a seed. Does not God tell him his seed will be as the stars of heaven or as the sand on the seashore? Christ is to see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Surely it's not a little that will satisfy him. The virtue of the precious redemption involves a great host who will be redeemed. All Scripture seems to tend that heaven will not be a narrow world, that its population will not be a little handful gleaned out of a vintage, but that Christ shall be glorified by ten thousands times ten thousands, whom he has redeemed with his blood. Now, where are they to come from? How small a part of the map could be called Christian? Look at it. Think about the world today. When we hear about countries like Britain where only 1% of the population ever enters the door and it gets less and less as we look at other countries, out of that part which could be called Christian, how small a portion of them would bear the name believer? How few could be said to have even a nominal attachment to the church of Christ? Out of this, how many are hypocrites? 
and know not the truth. I do not see it possible unless indeed the millennium age should soon come and then far, far exceed a thousand years. I do not see how it's possible that so vast a number could enter into heaven unless it be on the supposition that infant souls constitute the vast majority of them. It is a sweet belief to my own mind that there will be more saved than lost. For in all things Christ is to have the preeminence. And why not in this? It was the thought of a great divine that perhaps at the last the number of the lost would not be a greater proportion to the number of the saved than to the number of criminals in the jails to those who are abroad in a properly conducted state. I hope it may be found to be so. At any rate, it's not my business to, to be asking, Lord, are there few that shall be saved? The gate is straight, but the Lord knows how to bring thousands through it without making it any wider. And we ought not to seek to shut out by seeking to make it narrower. Oh, I do know that Christ will have the victory. And that as he is followed by steaming, streaming hosts, the black prince of hell will never be able to count so many followers in his train as there are in the train of our great Savior. And if we must have the children saved, yea, brethren, if not so, we must have them. Because we feel anyhow they must be numbered with the blessed and dwell with Christ hereafter in Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 21 God decries the unthinkable practice of Israel at the time of offering their firstborn to as burnt sacrifices to Moloch what an unspeakable thing Moloch was a graven image and his outstretched hands would be heated to white hot and as those pagans would offer their firstborn, you remember how God begged his people, forbid them to intermarry into the heathen, but they did. And the heathen always bring their heathen practices. They'll always creep into among the people of God. We ought to be very wary in this day of ours where everything goes. The heathen will bring their heathen practices, and I'll say no more. But they would heat the white hands of Moloch into their white hot and put an infant till he fried to death in Moloch's hands. Jehovah spoke. Oh, if Jehovah would speak today at the horrible offering of the sacrificing of the untold babies by abortion today. No worse than what the Israelites did in those days offering their babies to Moloch. There in Ezekiel 16 verse 21, God decries his people for offering their babies. And he's, there he says, Thou hast slain my children. What a powerful statement. Those babies were his. Those souls were his. God calls them his. They, and they and delivered them to pass through the fire. Notice that he calls them his. You've caused my children to pass through the fires of Moloch. Al Mohler and, and Daniel Aiken in an article that they co-authored entitled The Salvation of Little Ones, Do Infants Who Die Go to Heaven? They give this further example from Scripture. And they say, what then is our basis for claiming that all those who die in infancy are among the elect? First, the Bible teaches that we are to be judged on the basis of our deeds committed in this body. That is, we will face the judgment seat of Christ and be judged not on the basis of original sin, although we're guilty of inheriting a sinful nature, but for our sins committed in our lifetimes. Because we are sinners, we do sin. 
And we'll be judged on the basis of our sin. Each will answer according to what he has done, the Bible tells us. And not for the sin of Adam. The imputation of Adam's sin and guilt explains our inability to respond to God without regeneration. But the Bible does not teach that we will answer for Adam's sin. We will answer for our sin. And every mouth will be stopped. But what about infants? Have those who die in infancy committed such sins in the body? Of course not. One biblical text is particularly helpful at this point, he writes. After the children of Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness, God sentenced that entire generation to die in the wilderness, and He would not let them go into the land of promise. After 40 years of wandering, the Bible says, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers. But this was not all. God specifically exempted the young children and infants from this sentence, and he explained why he did so. Moreover, your little ones who you said would become prey, and your sons who, did, uh, who this day have no knowledge of good and evil shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. The key issue here is that God specifically exempted from the judgment those who have no knowledge, as he describes it, of good or evil because of their age. These little ones would inherit the promised land and would not be judged on the basis of the sins of their father. And if God would do that in inheriting a physical, earthly land, how much more so would he allow those to enter into the promised land of heaven? Neither knowing good or evil, these young children are incapable of committing sins in the body are yet not moral agents and die secure in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Newton, that notorious sinner who upon his conversion wrote the song we love to sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, was certain of this same truth. And he wrote to his close friends who lost a young child, I hope you're both well reconciled to the death of your child. I cannot be sorry for the death of infants. How many storms did they escape? Nor can I doubt in my private judgment that they are included in the election of grace. This we know. God knows everything, does he not? He knows uh, everything about us and of those before our parents conceived us. This knowledge goes all the way back to eternity past. And when he conceived us in his great design and his great mind and heart and plan, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought from afar off. Thou compassed me, my path and my lying down. Thou art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Well, Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 1 verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet into the nations. 
Parents, please teach these verses to your children because they will go out into a world who tells them there's no creator, there's no design. Where all through the Bible, God declares, I knew you, I planned for you, I designed you long before you were ever placed in your mother's womb. They uh, owe allegiance to a creator God. They need to be told it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. And he does have a plan for your life and you better submit to him and seek him with all your heart till you find it. This we know from the womb, God says that you are a person in his sight. Again, that's what the abortionists will not tell you. They do not believe that, but because they, just because they do not believe it does not mean it's true. God says that, that, that baby is a, they won't even call it a baby, but God calls it a man, a soul, because it will become that. He knows what his plan is for you. You are not an accident. He plans your DNA and what parents would be used to bring you into being. God is present and at work in every conception, overruling the sins and the the deeds of man. John MacArthur writes, He is involved in every moment, in every life He allows to be conceived. And God superintends and guards every life He allows to exist. He places every life into the context of his eternal plan and purpose. Now, admittedly, we get into deep waters when we begin to think about the plan and purposes of God. And I must tread lightly here because many of these things we do not understand how and why. But I want to refer you back to our text as we close tonight. You know the sordid story. You know the backdrop of conception of this baby that Bathsheba has with David. Humanly speaking, we think, why would God allow a conception that does not come to full term? That's from us. The expectant mother, the jittery father, the couple who's planned and prayed, who desires a baby only to conceive and for it to be so short-lived and for it to miscarry or, or to die in utero or at birth or is at a very young age, the, the human mind asks why. And I have no questions for your curious thoughts tonight. I will only tell you that the Bible tells us what God did. He allowed that baby to be born for His glory and for their good. This baby comes into David's life by the allowance of God. There's so many lessons here, conflicting in our minds, but, but true all the while. Whatsoever man soweth that shall he also reap. David in his reckless behavior, it was immoral and the result was a baby, but God superintended in his providence allowed that baby to come into David and Bathsheba's life and then he chooses to take it. That baby did more work in David's life than any other thing that we could imagine. We see him here, don't we? What a poignant picture it is of David praying and fasting and weeping his way back to the Lord. And I think, though I cannot tell you definitively, that Psalm 51 was written during that time of his fasting and praying and asking the Lord to to, uh, restore him and to, to keep the baby alive. Whenever it was, he wrote that. And we know that David was in great grief. The, the baby's life was in the balance. It's an even sickness of children. God uses for his own glory and his own purposes. It hurts us. 
It affects every part of the fiber of our heart and being. But again, God is sovereign, and He allowed the baby that your that that David and Bathsheba conceived to to be very ill. He was working a work in David's life. David's assistants, the the men of court, his elders, were tiptoeing around him. Uh, didn't know how to handle it. Didn't know what to say. David, the Lord used this to be in a time of of deep soul searching and worship and confession of sin and, and, and being right with the Lord. And then the news came that the baby died. I'm so glad that the Lord includes this spot, this part of David's life in the scripture for our learning. You see, the Bible gives us all sides and all the parts of a person's life, the warts and all, but David, uh, there's so many examples here for us. You know, he, he fasted and prayed, rightfully so, to ask for the baby's life to be spared. There was not a wrong thing for him to ask for the baby's life to be spared. But when we ask, questions, ask things like that, we always submit to the Lord's ultimate plan because we know the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He does not always grant the request just as we ask. David knew deep in his heart this doctrine that all souls are the Lord's. And when the news came that the baby died, he arose and washed, anointed himself with oil, as people would do as they were getting ready, as they were coming out from grief. He changed his apparel from sackcloth, from the garments of mourning. He dressed into his royal apparel, and he went into the house of the Lord. It's always appropriate to worship God in secret. David worshipped him in secret, but he worshipped him openly. Did you catch that Nathan the prophet when he came to David said, you've done this in secret and you thought you covered it up, but it will be shouted from the housetops. All of Israel will know of the sordid sin of their beloved king. David had sinned high-handedly and now he penitently and humbly goes to the house of the Lord. I've often thought about that scene of David filled with grief and mourning over the death of that baby entering into the house of the Lord among God's people. We can imagine some, just like today, some would be whispering and their hands up and pointing. Others would be weeping and their hearts would be overflowing knowing the pain and agony that their king was enduring. Others would be wondering at it, but the Holy Spirit records for us that David worshipped. In all matters that we do not fully understand, when we trace God's omnipotence and sovereignty, we must bow and worship Him. When He came to His own house, And when he required, he set bread before him and he did eat and he ate. You see, David was living before those who were looking to him. All of us have people who look to us to see how does grace pan out in the the nitty-gritty of grief and the death of babies and the sordidness of sin. David is walking humbly before his God. He's a broken man. For a year, he was silent. For a year, there was no... uh, Word from David, he was out of sight, he was a, a, a recluse, 
and uh, finally the Lord sent Nathan to him to, to bring him the truth and to bring him begin to, to bring him to repentance. And now David is is humbly and yet in his position living out before his people what what a Christian does, what a believer does in times of sorrow and darkness. They marveled at his composure. They marveled at his behavior among God's people there when when it was the custom of the time when when someone would die that you would tear your clothes to shreds to show your grief. They would paint ashes on the forehead and and to show that they're they're just bent to the earth, that, that life was was horrible and as, as you know, those of you who've gone through grief know that that's exactly what it's like. But, but David put on the royal apparel and anointed his head. There was no ashes there. Not that he did not respect the period of mourning, but, but God was at work. Like Eli of old, let God do what seemeth him good. They came to him. and Sometimes the most important Bible teaching is given in questions. How do we know where you're going, Lord? And how do we know the way? Aren't you glad Thomas asked that question? Thomas, I'm the way. I'm the truth, the life. No one cometh to the Father but by me. Even Satan, asking Satan about, asking the Lord about Job. Haven't you not put a hedge of protection around about him? I can't get near him. I can't get to him unless you let me. Often in questions come some of the greatest threads of hope and, that we hang on to in all the Scripture. Verse 22, he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. And I said, Who can tell? He said, David is not presumptuous. He's not dictating to God what to do. He's humble before his God. And he bows before the majesty and sovereignty of God. Who can tell? God may spare this child's life. But the other side is true as well, isn't it? God may be gracious unto me that the child may live, but... Now he is dead. In other words, there's nothing else that can be done. No candles lit. No praying out of purgatory. No bargaining or wrangling with God. He is dead. As far as this life is concerned, there's no more. And he asks a question, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Of course, the answer is no. I shall go to him. What a statement of definitive faith. I'll go to him. He shall not return to me, but I will go to him. Oh, what a message of grace. With the backdrop of such sordidness and sin and sorrow, repentance and faith, I shall go to him. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It speaks to us and comforts us like no human reasoning can. And in fact, Lord, when we come to these matters, all human reasoning is just supposition. Philosophy will not avail at the death of a child. Sentimentality in people's wishes does not change these things. But we're thankful that in your sovereignty, in your glorious majesty, that you elect those precious babies and you regenerate them in some way that we do not understand and make them fit for heaven. And all those who 
have mourned the death of a baby or a miscarriage or a young child and to those who may be under the heavy hand of grief even now, I pray that you'd use your word to comfort their souls. Lord, may we be quick and ready to comfort those who are grieving and with the comfort wherewith we have been comforted. Lord, we pray that you would bless us and and make us strong and stalwart people. May we believe your book and base what we believe upon the word and not on emotion or the popular ideas of people. Lord, use your word tonight as only you can do in Jesus' precious name.